Welcome to Bookish at Bethel. I am Anne-Marie Koistra in the History Department, and I am joined by... Gary Peffley in the Philosophy Department. Today, we are talking with Eric Leafblad from the Department of Bible and Theological Studies, and we are going to cover some of the selections that students are reading from Marx, Walter Rauschenbusch, and Pope Leo XIII. Well, Eric, let's dive right into some of the readings that Humanities for Students are doing this week. And I believe that includes some selections from Marx. It's a little bit from Pope Leo. And then we've also got some Walter Rauschenbusch. Yep. And I'm wondering if you would just remind folks if they've read this in the past, what it's about, or maybe tell folks who are reading it for the first time what some of the, the texts are about. Yeah, so maybe I'll start by saying like these are, at least the theological texts, maybe I'll hold off on talking too much about Marx, not because I don't want to talk about Marx, but I feel like there's others that are more equipped to do that. I like Marx a lot, um, mostly because I think, I just said I wouldn't talk about him, and now I'm going to talk about him. Uh, mostly because I think most of our students, and I mean, this was certainly true of me as an undergrad, like we have a pretty well-conceived idea of who we think Marx is, and then we actually read Marx, and um, we realize like, oh, uh, maybe he's not who I thought he was. Well, let's, can I interrupt and say, who do you think we think Marx is? So I think, um, it, like at least, so I'll speak first person, like, if you had asked me who Karl Marx is, I would have coming into college, uh, I would have known like he wrote the communist man manifesto. I would have known nothing about Engels. Um, and I, I would have assumed what that meant was like, um, he, I would have assumed he's Russian. Oh, uh, I would have assumed that he hates America. Mm -hmm. And I would have assumed that he's my enemy. Okay. Um, and that he really doesn't like people being successful. Okay. Like that would be my, those would have been my things. And I'm, I, I don't fancy myself like a dumb person. No. Um, so I, I just, I think that like the connection to communism and maybe this is waning. I don't know. It'd be interesting to like have a conversation with students. But for me, like the cold war was a very formative sort of background for so much and not, not just in terms of like, historical political stuff but even theological stuff you know like so much of um trying to read the tea leaves of the so-called end times for instance was related to the fall of the berlin wall and the mm -hmm. the role that reagan was maybe playing in bringing about you know the the millennia and who gorbachev is with that weird mark on his head must be something like and all of those directly sort of painted this weird sort of apocalyptic picture of Marx as the bad guy or communism as the bad guy. And so therefore Marx is the bad guy. And then I actually read Marx and I was like, oh, that sounds not at times, not unlike Jesus. Um, and so I, I always like taking students through Marx because I think, I, I think a lot of those sort of mythologies get, demythologized a bit and they can actually encounter Marx um, on Marx's terms rather than sort of the theological imaginative terms, at least that I was introduced to. Now, I haven't done that in probably 10 years with people. So who knows, like maybe students are much more receptive given 
the world that we live in now, um, but maybe not. So you, you just mentioned the comparison to Jesus. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about that and maybe related to that, other things that maybe you think students will be surprised to find in the marks they think they know. Yeah, um, I think, well, let me, let me start with like uh, things that sound like Jesus. Um, I think one of the things we miss in the gospels because of the, um, because of the lens, almost the presumed sort of virtue of capitalism um, is that like Jesus is really hard on the rich and, and not in a, like just a spiritualistic sense. Um, like, I think, for instance, the parable of the rich or, you know, the encounter with the rich young ruler, like, I don't think Jesus is just saying to this guy, like, hey, go divest your affinities. Like, he's really saying, get rid of your money and then come follow me. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like what he follows that up with is it's, you know, he says after that, it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. Like, otherwise that doesn't make any sense. Like if he doesn't really mean it, uh, I don't know that it makes a lot of sense. Um, and of course, like we have our theological sophistications to get around that, but there's a really good contemporary theologian named David Bentley Hart, who's a Eastern Orthodox theologian who just translated the new Testament, spent years working with the Greek. And one of the things that he comes out of that, those years um, just utterly convinced of is that, uh, we modern folks have missed the very radical nature of the New Testament as regards material wealth mm-hmm. uh, and its corrupting um, nature on us as persons. And I think that's where I, I, I hear Marx and Jesus, obviously like Marx was not a Christian, <laughs> um, but he was influenced by Christianity. And I think there's, I think there's some, like, I think, Oftentimes, the, I, I would say the best atheists are the ones who actually know theology and Christianity well. And like those are the atheists we're reading. Arguably, Freud doesn't, but that's a different conversation. Uh, but like Marx and Nietzsche know their Christianity, and that's yeah. what makes them really good atheists and helpful atheists. And that's where I think Marx, um, I think Marx actually gathered some stuff from Jesus uh, in terms of just the, the question around like, what does, what does exorbitant wealth do to a person? Um, Let alone a society. Like obviously Marx is much more focused on the social question, but I think he cares about like the way that that influences people's formative nature and character. I I think he thinks it's corruptive and I think Jesus does too. I wonder whether if we had students reread David Bentley Hart's translation of those certain passages of the New Testament and then read Marx, whether they would find, whether they would find it a little bit more immediately palatable mm-hmm. as opposed to the translations that they've likely read. Yeah. I don't know if they'd find it palatable. I think they might find it more, um, I think it might be more unsettling. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like that's one of the things that I, I so enjoy about. So I read a book um, by a guy named Merrill Westfall Mm -hmm. uh, called 
uh, suspicion and faith. And basically he like marches through Nietzsche, Freud and Marx and uses them to um, essentially interrogate the assumptions that we have about our own Christianity. And it was probably the most profound book I read up until, you know, maybe three, four years ago. So I read it in early 2000s, maybe. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason was because it was so unsettling of all my presumptions about how I read the biblical text, the sort of Jesus that I both relate to and try to help others relate to. Um, and it be began to force me to ask questions about um, things that we've been considering in the humanities, like what is the good life? What is justice? Um, you know, for a long time, the good life for me was uh, have a family, have a nice little plot of land, right? Suburbia. Mm -hmm. uh, make sure my kids have every opportunity they want um, and, and sprinkle a little Jesus on top of it. Um, <laughs> you know, and, or rather, like really Jesus is the one that wants that for me. And reading Mark's, alongside of sort of my masters of divinity and, and engaging some folks like Gustavo Gutierrez, who's a liberation theologian who we'll talk about later in the semester in one of my lectures, like suddenly I started to ask the question, like, what if that's not what Jesus wants for me? Um, and so Marx became like, I say this a bit provocatively, but also somewhat honestly, like Marx became somebody who discipled me deeper into the kingdom, I think. Well, and I think this leads to another uh, topic or question. And I think part of what we will see in Professor Peffley's lectures is we will look at Marx um, a little bit, but then we are going to go to Nietzsche and Freud. And she talks about them. You talk about them, Carrie, as being the unmaskers. And I think all three of them work to help us take off some masks. And so I would love to go back to you've mentioned, and I think most people know that Marx was not a big pro-Christianity um, advocate, mm -hmm. but there is a reason for that. And I wonder if you could just say, um, again, for folks who kind of, they know this about Marx, but they haven't read Marx maybe. And so if you could say a little bit about why he is, why, do you, why is he in that position? Yeah. So like Marx's main critique of and I, like, we have to be really clear. Marx's critique is a critique of religion and I, I hesitate to make the distinction between like Christianity and religion, but there is a sense in which like, I think Marx would look at like Latin American Christians who are sort of living uh, in more communi communitarian ways. And I think he would see in that something different than what he meant by religion. For him, religion was the establishment, the, the institution that was bound up in maintaining the status quo of society that allowed certain folks to, to, and obviously this is a bit gross, but that's fine. Like uh, certain folks to, to rise really quickly and get ahead really quickly, sort of on the backs of other folks. Um, and so religion played a part in that because it legitimated what this, this sense that um, if you're one of those folks, that's not part of the elite, the bourgeois religion is your reward so to speak. Religion is the thing um, that keeps you in your place by promising you something else other than material um, justice or equity, really. Um, and I guess I just, I hear in that 
critique the prophet Amos. Uh, I hear in that critique um, John the Baptist, which is partly what Rauschenbusch is talking about when he says John the Baptist has to be the precursor to Jesus because John the Baptist is the one that starts getting the messianic stuff in the air for people um, so that they can hear the social social work of the kingdom of God in Jesus's ministry. Um, I hear in that the, the cry of, um, you know, basically those, those folks all throughout the biblical text who were situated at the margins um, saying your, your religion and your devout practice is meaningless if it does nothing to address the, the real injustice and the real um, inequity of your day. So, like, that was a huge thing. Like, that critique of religion hits home, um, particularly for me, like a youth group kid who spent a lot of time on mission trips where I'm, quote, unquote, changing the world um, without ever once talking about, like, geopolitical capitalism. And the reason that I can even go on a mission trip is because of my position in North America versus being a kid in a barrio in Mexico. Like I, I just like Marx made me have those conversations with myself and other folks. Um, and so Marx didn't destroy my faith. Marx made my faith become more aware of certain focal points that I was not raised to look at. Mm-hmm. And I think some of those focal points, um, as you were talking about Marx's critique or comments about Christianity, really do, like you said, Anne-Marie, also overlap with Nietzsche's critiques. Um, Some of those same things that I think Nietzsche used well can actually make our faith stronger because he sort of really hones in on the problems with Christianity as it is currently expressed. Um, and, and makes us look at our own at our own flaws. I am interested, though. So we said we weren't going to talk much about Marx because other people could do it better. What about Leo and Rauschenbusch? Yeah. Okay. So uh, <laughs> I want to spend more time on Rauschenbusch because I I really I, I like a lot of Rauschenbusch and I'm also really critical of parts of Rauschenbusch. Um, Precise, partly because like Rauschenbusch starts to like, I think, go towards a more Marxist Christianity and then he pulls back at really important points. Um, but let's, let's, I've said before on this podcast, I'm the radical Protestant. So, you know, reading a papal encyclical makes me want to throw things. <laughs> I, I kid. People can't see me. I just shook my head. But uh, so Regnum Novarum uh, is a pretty like, noteworthy Catholic text, particularly for the time, um, in that it sort of comes out on the side of, for lack of a better word, labor. You know, the, the, the folks that are not benefiting from the Industrial Revolution are not benefiting from the Gilded Age. Um, interestingly, in Catholic history, in, almost immediately after Leo's uh, papacy, you get uh, a pious, the, I can't think of his number, one of the piouses, and you get the first Vatican Council, which is like a huge pushback on, um, it's sort of like a, a, 
a really traditional Vatican council um, where it's reasserting kind of the, the power of um, the Vatican. It, that's where they decide on papal infallibility. Um, like when speaking ex cathedral, like sitting in the seat of the Pope, which, you know, I think most people just assume that's always been the case, but it, it wasn't. It's kind of functions like uh, biblical inerrancy for evangelicals. Like we, we think the Bible's always been, there's always been this thing called inerrancy. Well, no, it didn't come around until the late 19th century. That's kind of the Catholic version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, papal infallibility. So like, and that's a huge pushback on kind of looking at context um, to do theology or to, to think, um, think about church society and world. So, uh, and I, what's interesting, why I raise that is I would just invite students to reflect on maybe the little, like contemporary Catholicism. You had uh, Pope Benedict or Ratzinger, who's a pretty traditional Pope. Um, and, and, you know, then you got in response, you get this Argentinian who's mm-hmm. Pope Francis, who's pretty radical um, in some ways. And so it's curious to me, like, once Francis is done, what will happen? Like, in, it is maybe just the history of, of Catholicism going to be this back and forth, because it kind of has been since, uh, uh, since Leo. And maybe um, this is kind of my era, so I know more about, like, stuff in the 20th century. So um, maybe it's always been that way, but I don't suspect it has been. I think that's kind of a feature of modernism. It's kind of this polarization back and forth kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I think students will like reading Regnum Novarum. It would have been fun. Um, there's always things that would be fun to add to it. It'd be fun to read some of the stuff from Vatican I just as a response to see. Um, maybe even just like theolo- in terms of like theological method. Um, Regnum Novarum is really directed towards the world. You can, like, it's very clearly explicitly about what's happening vatican one tries to not do that but it's you but if you know the history and you've read regnum varm you know there's all this other like traditional just we're just talking about doctrine and church teaching and all that but it's absolutely directed at regnum varm so anyway interesting bit of catholic history mm-hmm. i think it's interesting though too just to point out again because so many people will not have read this in this encyclical, right? It's an encyclical. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Pope is actually showing a very clear awareness of what is happening as a result of the Second Industrial Revolution at the end of the 19th century. And on some level, it will read conservatively because he definitely upholds things like private property. This is a very important thing. He's not suggesting we abolish private property. And so right there, he might sound to some like a conservative. And yet it's very, to me, Catholic and Christian in his approach to, we are human beings. We are fundamentally human beings, Mm -hmm. labor and capital. And so he reminds us of the Imago Dei, that we are made in the image of God. And if you are a Catholic who happens to be um, owning a factory, you need to recognize the humanity of your workers and vice versa. So it's a very interesting um, document in that while it's very aware of the 19th century, it's also encouraging people to behave as though they are made in the image of God. 
it's mm-hmm. very pastoral. Yeah. Uh, which is not always typical of an encyclical. Like Vatican I is a little less pastoral. It's a little more reassertive of like orthodoxy and tradition and teaching. And yeah, to your point, like he's trying to speak to the whole church as its pastor, not necessarily as its chief theologian. Mm-hmm. Now, I know you want to talk about Walter Rauschenbusch. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so tell us a little bit about Walter Rauschenbusch. I believe he's Baptist. Yep. So the social gospel, like, uh, is kind of a Baptist thing. Like it has, it has parallels and, um, you know, instantiations, if you will, in other, um, denominations. Like there's folks that would embrace pretty much everything Walt writes about, but, um, uh, but really, like the if there is such a thing, and like that's an argument among sort of church historians as to like is there such a thing as the social gospel, or is it more social gospels, um, or can we really even call it a thing, like a school, or what you know, whatever. If that's a thing, it really is a Baptist movement. It's Rochester Seminary, Colgate, Rochester Colgate Seminary in upstate New York, and Rauschenbusch is kind of the most like famous is what I want to say, but, uh, I mean, that's, that's true. There's no question. He's the most notable, but he really is working with some of his, um, some of the folks that are older than him. There's a guy named Augustus Strong who wrote in the late 19th century, who's actually really like articulated almost everything that Rauschenbusch said. Um, but he was kind of strong was kind of like embedded in the Academy in some ways. And so he, he was never really able to speak, which is ironic because he's writing about a social gospel, right? You would think that he would want that to resonate more broadly, but he was never really able to step out of kind of his academic methodology. Whereas, and he was Rauschenbusch's teacher and Rauschenbusch, so far as we know, didn't, or one of Rauschenbusch's teacher teachers, Rauschenbusch, so far as we know, wasn't really convinced of the social gospel until he ended up in Harlem as a pastor. Mm -hmm. Um, and when he ended up in Harlem as a pastor and saw some of the social conditions uh, of labor and, and some African-Americans in Harlem, like that's when he became kind of convinced of it and started to write more on, you know, like Christianity and the social crisis, or he tried to do a theology of the social gospel and that came out right before World War One, And then that kind of fell apart because of World War One because it was a little bit, it's a little bit too optimistic for the world that ends up coming into being in the 20th century. Um, so I'm wondering if you could, mm-hmm. like, how would you, how would you explain what the social gospel is? What is this entity that yeah. you're referring to? I would describe, so I would like elevator speech, social gospel is this. Uh, the social gospel is concerned with the social conditions of the non-important people of the world and believes that it is the task of the church to discern where the kingdom of God is present and coming and orient itself there among folks like that. So a really important theological reality of the social gospel is there cannot be, and there is not a conflation between the church and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is always prior to the church. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the kingdom of God is an, is an eschatological or a, 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 a future-oriented category that should determine the empirical reality of the church. That's really essential to understanding the social gospel. So, um, well, and I talk about it sometimes in a history class as a reaction to the kind of Christianity that suggests that we need to be future oriented. And by that, they often meant other world mm -hmm. or heaven oriented. And so there was the justification for it doesn't really matter what we do on earth because earth is going to hell in a handbasket. Yep. And so we can just be focused on the salvation that we'll up, enjoy up in the pearly gates of heaven. And that also then gives you the license to maybe ignore the social conditions yep. that perhaps are part of a neighborhood that you've maybe moved out of. Yep. And so I think that's a very interesting historical setting for Rauschenbusch. Yep. I think, too, the other thing I'll just mention, and I know you want to talk about this. No, you're good. Is I think, too, it's important to acknowledge that it's also a rejection of the very popular social Darwinism kind of thinking mm. that was in place in the late 19th century, which yep. also says even if you're not oriented toward the pearly gates of heaven, you believe in an evolutionary system that has put the rich on the top because they are probably intrinsically better. So mm -hmm. there's no reason to interfere in the natural process on the behalf of poor people. So yep. you see a very interesting rejection of both a religious kind of ideology and a secular ideology yep. in Rauschenbusch's thought. And mm -hmm. I think it's important to add to that, like Rauschenbusch, the social gospel, like kind of, occupies a weird space culturally because it is pushing back on kind of the, the nascent evangelicalism or fundamentalism that would, that would of folks like Billy Sunday, Dwight Moody, these big crusade type folks that like come get saved so you can go to heaven and then we'll figure everything else out based on whatever, usually corporate corporation. There's a great book by uh, a guy named Kevin Cruz, who's a historian at Princeton who argues that, basically modern corporatism and evangelicalism go hand in hand. It's a bit overblown, but it's not entirely oh wrong. Um, anyway, uh, and the reason being like, that's such an individualist understanding both of salvation and like one of the things that corporations need, I, my, I hope no economists listen to this, like they need isolated individuals to sell to, right? So they need consumers as individual choosers. So that's where those two things sort of line up a little bit in my mind. That's what makes the social gospel still relevant for me a little bit. Um, anyway, the other piece of that is that it's also pushing back against the Protestant establishment, which um, may not always be social Darwinistic, but is certainly... Um, oriented towards the haves more than the have-nots, right? And so this is where uh, there's another historian by the name of Heath Carter um, who's done a lot of work on history of what he calls social Christianities. And he actually argues that um, Rauschenbusch is almost co-opting something that had been around for 40 years among folks in the pews and and one of the things that drives their sort of move like one of the reasons 
church people start to get involved in the labor movement is because they saw their pastors who used to make the same amount of money as them essentially become get bought by the Rockefellers, the Carnegie's, the, the big Protestant establishment started to pay pastors more money so that they could move into that more um, gilded class, you might say. Yes. And let me interrupt just to say, I believe Rockefeller was a Baptist as well. He was, he, he funded, and that's, that's part of the rub. That's one of the things that Carter points out in his book is that like Rauschen Bush is in an endowed chair because of this guy Rockefeller. Right. And so, and so that, that's where like some of my criticisms of Rauschenbusch come out is like, he wants, he wants people to get their money, so to speak, so they can live. So women can go back in the home and do what good yeah. upper middle class women do. Right. Like there's a lot of bougie or bougie values built into the way Rauschenbusch talks. And one of the things that Heath Carter wants to point out is like, that's not necessarily what labor wanted. And labor was connecting that to their Christianity. And they were, they were going to their churches sometimes and even demonstrating at their churches, basically saying, hey, uh, pastor, why are you getting paid so much and we're not? So, like, uh, Rauschenbusch is awesome. He occupies a really interesting space. And yet he can't, I don't know, like he can't fully go he's not marxist enough i mean that's that's the bottom line <laughs> which of course is why they make such a nice threesome right with marx leo and rauschenbusch you kind of have leo who's still going to defend capitalism in some ways rauschenbusch who won't but doesn't go as far as marx so you have a nice kind of spectrum uh of yeah factors. well and i think i mean i think the the challenge that somebody like um Professor Carter raises for us in terms of thinking about this era, but also its legacy. Because uh, I think that's really important because oftentimes, like, in, if you read, like, the theological storylines of the 20th century, it's like the social gospel sprung up was this really important thing, and then World War I happened, so it just went away. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, if you tell it as a story of figureheads, if it's a story of the establishment, then yeah, it, it went away. Like there aren't really that many uh, social gospel theologians out there. However, if you tell it as a story that got its start in the pews and became a, a disciple, it was actually discipleship of church folk. Well, now the question becomes what became the social crisis post-World War I? And you end up with things like, uh, theology and race. You end up with things like theology and, and exploitation in the, in the Southern hemisphere. And so the real sort of, I, I, I make this argument um, in, in partly in my dissertation that the real like uh, legacy of the social gospel is that it gave, it gave birth to what you might call indigenous forms of it didn't give birth. That's not fair. It, it uh, osmosified, I guess you could say, into other, th other issues. Um, and, and, and I think in the theological world, until we start to recognize, and that's where, like, I, I've brought up Dr. Carter on purpose. I think that's where his work is really, really important to show that, like, liberation theology which will become one it, it is probably the most dominant form of theology now was not just 
this uh, sort of aberration that happened, it, it was, it has long uh, tentacles back. It's just, we have to start looking for the story in the right place. And we're not looking for the story in the right place. And why that's important is because as we look at issues of injustice right now, there might be points of intersection that we're missing because we're not willing to tell the story in the right way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, I, I have one thought too, and that is, again, as I think about the context of the social gospel, I immediately also think about the fact that another group of people that are pushing back against social Darwinism are the settlement house workers and the mm-hmm. movement that becomes social work. And those are primarily, again, women. And so women. it's yep. interesting. Go ahead, Carrie, go ahead. Oh, I was just thinking of like Jane Adams um, and that the, the Catholic social justice movement um, in the United States and, and similar ones with, say, like Josephine Butler in England and the social work movement. Yeah, all happening yeah. around the same time. So I just think it's, it's uh, even as important as Rauschenbusch is, he is part of also a much larger story that, and again, Jane Adams, as someone you mentioned, is someone who comes from a Protestant background and religion is part of the reason she gets involved in the settlement house. And right trying to provide those social services for poor people. And she never leaves. She never leaves. Mm -hmm. And I I think like the important, one of the important maybe recognitions of that is like Rauschenbusch talks in the piece that we're reading um, that uh, he talks about uh, essentially like when, when these various groups that are sort of rent apart by forces come together, then we have, uh, then we can have kind of a, a, a collective that's powerful, that, that that can be part of this sort of building of the kingdom of God, so to speak. And I think where Rauschenbusch is, is um, like, I think it's important to recognize that a lot of those social movements continue outside of the theological establishment. And it may be Rauschenbusch's sort of um, uh, Christian myopic I that that can't see because he kind of goes away like um but then he starts to pop up when all these other sort of things start to happen like they're like catholic worker house comes around and like they're incredibly influenced by him right so he uh so i think it is important to recognize that perhaps part of the legacy of the social gospel is not just what happens in theological worlds but what happens outside of the theological worlds. And by legacy, I don't mean like they all read Rauschenbusch and were convinced because of Rauschenbusch. I mean, the stuff that Rauschenbusch thought mattered to discipleship might not be found in the church. And I think that's what's important about his distinction between the kingdom of God being prior, taking priority and the church, the empirical church being secondary to that or responding to that. There's a guy, J.C. Hoykendijk, who's a theologian uh, uh, from uh, Europe, uh, Dutch guy. And, uh, he writes, uh, he's part of the ecumenical movement in the mid, like post-World War II. And he argues that like one of the central features of the, the sort of what, what becomes the mission of God, which is kind of like the kingdom of God in Rauschenbusch is the notion of Shalom. And he argues that Shalom is a comprehensive category. And that is what humanity is called to seek. And that is what God is revealing in Christ is that humanity is called to seek and make shalom. So the church can be a part of that or the church can't. 
Um, and it's the unfaithful church that isn't part of that. And I think that also is like, that's what endures from Rauschenbusch is that there's something bigger than the church going on. And that's what Jesus was trying to help us see is that there's a, this is not come inside the church so you can get saved. This is God's up to something in the world and the church can either be part of that or not. Mm -hmm. I like that way of thinking about it. Yeah. Nicely said. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm aware of the time. And and so Eric, before we leave, I want to make sure I ask, I know you don't like the what's on your nightstand. You like to think outside that box, but if you have something on your nightstand or if you want to talk about the music you're listening to, I'll accept either one. Okay. So I'm reading right now, uh, two books that are really like, I think really important for me. Um, one is, uh, called white for too long. It's by a a gentleman who's sort of articulating the way that maybe white supremacy is baked into the American religious experience and, um, for, for the, for white, white folks, um, that you can't just sort of disentangle it by saying like, well, I'm not a white supremacist. Like it might've, impact. And I think that's, it's been pretty important for me. The other one I'm reading is a book called Cross and Cosmos uh, by John Caputo. And uh, basic idea is that like, if we're really going to be theologians of the cross, then perhaps we need to think of um, ecology and cosmos as participating in the cruciform reality of God. Uh, if that doesn't make any sense, it's a pretty complex argument and I'm not sure I know what it means yet, but it feels important to me. So, uh, and then I'm listening, I've been listening a lot to a guy named Raylan Baxter, uh, who's really good. So check him out. Nice. What about you, Anne-Marie? What's on your nightstand? I am still going through um, silence with Endo and I'm enjoying it. Uh, even though it is not a page turner. Right. So if you're going to do that, uh, then make sure you have the space to do that one. Carrie, what's on your nightstand? Well, you know, speaking of not page turners, I'm still slogging through James Joyce's Ulysses. It's going, I mean, I think it's going to be like two years before I actually finish it. Even with the pandemic, it's still, and it's so good. I don't want to say like, it's not good. It's great. It's just, it takes work. So um, I'm I'm slowly making my way through that. And then much more enjoyably still working my way through um, hiking with Nietzsche, um, which is just a really, a, a fun read. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, you have been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Bethel.